Chapter Sixteen of Erewhon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Neil Donnelly. Erewhon by Samuel Butler. Chapter Sixteen. Erewhona. The reader will perhaps have learned by this time a thing which I had myself suspected before I had been twenty-four hours in Mr. Nosnibor's house. I mean that though the Nosnibors showed me every attention, I could not cordially like them, with the exception of Erowena, who was quite different from the rest. They were not fair samples of Erewhonians. I saw many families with whom they were on visiting terms, whose manners charmed me more than I know how to say, but I never could get over my original prejudice against Mr. Nosnibor for having embezzled the money. Mrs. Nosnibor, too, was a very worldly woman, yet to hear her talk one would have thought that she was singularly the reverse. Neither could I endure Zulora. Erowena, however, was perfection. She it was who ran all the little errands for her mother and Mr. Nosnibor and Zulora, and gave those thousand proofs of sweetness and unselfishness which some one member of a family is generally required to give. All day long it was Arowena this and Arowena that, but she never seemed to know that she was being put upon, and was always bright and willing from morning till evening. Zulora certainly was very handsome, but Arowena was infinitely the more graceful of the two, and was the very ne plus ultra of youth and beauty. I will not attempt to describe her, for anything that I could say would fall so far short of the reality as only to mislead the reader. Let him think of the very loveliest that he can imagine, and he will still be below the truth. Having said this much, I need hardly say that I had fallen in love with her. She must have seen what I felt for her, but I tried my hardest not to let it appear even by the slightest sign. I had many reasons for this. I had no idea what Mr. and Mrs. Nosnibor would say to it, and I knew that Arowena would not look at me, at any rate not yet, if her father and mother disapproved, which they probably would, considering that I had nothing except the pension of about a pound a day of our money which the king had granted me. I did not yet know of a more serious obstacle. In the meantime, I may say that I had been presented at court and was told that my reception had been considered as singularly gracious. Indeed, I had several interviews both with the king and queen, at which from time to time the queen got everything from me I had in the world, clothes and all, except the two buttons I had given to Iram, the loss of which seemed to annoy her a good deal. I was presented with a court suit, and Her Majesty had my old clothes put upon a wooden dummy, on which they probably remain unless they have been removed in consequence of my subsequent downfall. His Majesty's manners were those of a cultivated English gentleman. He was much pleased at hearing that our government was monarchical, and that the mass of the people were resolute that it should not be changed. Indeed, I was so much encouraged by the evident pleasure with which he heard me that I ventured to quote to him those beautiful lines of Shakespeare's. There's a divinity doth hedge a king, rough hew him how we may. But I was sorry I had done so afterwards, for I do not think His Majesty admired the lines as much as I could have wished. 
There is no occasion for me to dwell further upon my experience of the court, but I ought perhaps to allude to one of my conversations with the king, inasmuch as it was pregnant with the most important consequences. He had been asking about my watch, and inquiring whether such dangerous inventions were tolerated in the country from which I came. I owned with some confusion that watches were not uncommon, but observing the gravity which came over His Majesty's face, I presumed to say that they were fast dying out, and that we had few if any other mechanical contrivances of which he was likely to disapprove. Upon his asking me to name some of our most advanced machines, I did not dare to tell him of our steam engines and railroads and electric telegraphs, and was puzzling my brains to think what I could say when, of all things in the world, balloons suggested themselves, and I gave him an account of a very remarkable ascent which was made some years ago. The king was too polite to contradict, but I felt sure that he did not believe me, and from that day forward, though he always showed me the attention which was due to my genius, for in this light was my complexion regarded, he never questioned me about the manners and customs of my country. To return, however, to Arowena, I soon gathered that neither Mr. nor Mrs. Nosnibor would have any objection to my marrying into the family. Physical excellence is considered in Erewhon as a set-off against almost any other disqualification, and my light hair was sufficient to make me an eligible match. But along with this welcome fact, I gathered another which filled me with dismay. I was expected to marry Zulora, for whom I had already conceived a great aversion. At first I hardly noticed the little hints and the artifices which were resorted to in order to bring us together, but after a time they became too plain. Zulora, whether she was in love with me or not, was bent on marrying me, and I gathered in talking with a young gentleman of my acquaintance who frequently visited the house and whom I greatly disliked, that it was considered a sacred and inviolable rule that whoever married into a family must marry the eldest daughter at that time unmarried. The young gentleman urged this upon me so frequently that I at last saw he was in love with Arowena himself, and wanted me to get Zulora out of the way. But others told me the same story as to the custom of the country, and I saw there was a serious difficulty. My only comfort was that Arowena snubbed my rival and would not look at him. Neither would she look at me. Nevertheless, there was a difference in the manner of her disregard. This was all I could get from her. And not that she avoided me. On the contrary, I had many tete-a-tete uh, -tete with her, for her mother and sister were anxious for me to deposit some part of my pension in the musical banks, this being in accordance with the dictates of their goddess Idgrun, of whom both Mrs. Nasnabor and Zulora were great devotees. I was not sure whether I had kept my secret from being perceived by Arowena herself, but none of the others suspected me, so she was set upon me to get me to open an account, at any rate, pro forma with the musical banks, and I need hardly say that she succeeded. But I did not yield at once. I enjoyed the process of being argued with too keenly to lose it by a prompt concession. Besides, a little hesitation rendered the concession itself more valuable. It was in the course of conversations on this subject that I learned the more defined religious opinions of the Erewhonians that coexist with the musical bank system, but are not recognized by those curious institutions. 
I will describe them as briefly as possible in the following chapters before I return to the personal adventures of Arowina and myself. They were idolaters, though of a comparatively enlightened kind, but here, as in other things, there was a discrepancy between their professed and actual belief, for they had a genuine and potent faith which existed without recognition alongside of their idol-worship. The gods whom they worship openly are personifications of human qualities as justice, strength, hope, fear, love, etc., etc. The people think that prototypes of these have a real objective existence in a region far beyond the clouds, holding, as did the ancients, that they are like men and women both in body and passion, except that they are even comelier and more powerful, and also that they can render themselves invisible to human eyesight. They are capable of being propitiated by mankind, and of coming to the assistance of those who ask their aid. Their interest in human affairs is keen, and on the whole beneficent, but they become very angry if neglected, and punish rather the first they come upon than the actual person who has offended them, their fury being blind when it is raised, though never raised without reason. They will not punish with any less severity when people sin against them from ignorance and without the chance of having had knowledge. They will take no excuse of this kind, but are even as the English law, which assumes itself to be known to everyone. Thus they have a law that two pieces of matter may not occupy the same space at the same moment, which law is presided over and administered by the gods of time and space jointly, so that if a flying stone and a man's head attempt to outrage these gods by arrogating a right which they do not possess, for so it is written in one of their books, and to occupy the same space simultaneously, a severe punishment, sometimes even death itself, is sure to follow, without any regard to whether the stone knew that the man's head was there, or the head the stone. This, at least, is their view of the common accidents of life. Moreover, they hold their deities to be quite regardless of motives. With them it is the thing done which is everything, and the motive goes for nothing. Thus they hold it strictly forbidden for a man to go without common air in his lungs for more than a very few minutes, and if by any chance he gets into the water, the air-god is very angry, and will not suffer it, no matter whether the man got into the water by accident or on purpose, whether through the attempt to save a child or through presumptuous contempt of the air-god, the air-god will kill him unless he keeps his head high enough out of the water, and thus gives the air-god his due. This with regard to the deities who manage physical affairs. Over and above these they personify hope, fear, love, and so forth, giving them temples and priests, and carving likenesses of them in stone, which they verily believe to be faithful representations of living beings, who are only not human in being more than human. If anyone denies the objective existence of these divinities, and says that there is really no such being as a beautiful woman called Justice, with her eyes blinded and a pair of scales, positively living and moving in a remote and ethereal region, but that Justice is only the personified expression of certain modes of human thought and action, they say that he denies the existence of Justice in denying her personality, and that he is a wanton disturber of men's religious convictions. They detest nothing so much as any attempt to lead them to higher spiritual conceptions of the deities whom they profess to worship. Arowina and I had a pitched battle on this point, and should have had many more but for my prudence in allowing her to get the better of me. 
I am sure that in her heart she was suspicious of her own position, for she returned more than once to the subject. "'Can you not see,' I had exclaimed, "'that the fact of justice being admirable will not be affected by the absence of a belief in her being also a living agent? Can you really think that men will be one whit less hopeful, because they no longer believe that hope is an actual person?' She shook her head, and said that with men's belief in the personality, all incentive to the reverence of the thing itself, as justice or hope, would cease. Men from that hour would never be either just or hopeful again. I could not move her, nor indeed did I seriously wish to do so. She deferred to me in most things, but she never shrank from maintaining her opinions if they were put in question nor does she to this day abate one jot of her belief in the religion of her childhood, though in compliance with my repeated entreaties she has allowed herself to be baptized into the English church. She has, however, made a gloss upon her original faith to the effect that her baby and I are the only human beings exempt from the vengeance of the deities for not believing in their personality. She is quite clear that we are exempted. She should never have so strong a conviction of it otherwise. How it has come about she does not know, neither does she wish to know. There are things which it is better not to know, and this is one of them. But when I tell her that I believe in her deities as much as she does, and that it is a difference about words, not things, she becomes silent with a slight emphasis. I own that she very nearly conquered me once, for she asked me what I should think if she were to tell me that my God— whose nature and attributes I had been explaining to her, was but the expression for man's highest conception of goodness, wisdom, and power, that in order to generate a more vivid conception of so great and glorious a thought, man had personified it and called it by name, that it was an unworthy conception of the deity to hold him personal, inasmuch as escape from human contingencies became thus impossible, that the real thing men should worship was the divine, whereinsoever they could find it, that God was but man's way of expressing his sense of the divine, that as justice, hope, wisdom, etc., were all parts of goodness, so God was the expression which embraced all goodness and all good power, that people would no more cease to love God on ceasing to believe in his objective personality, than they had ceased to love justice on discovering that she was not really personal nay, that they would never truly love him till they saw him thus. She said all this in her artless way, and with none of the coherence with which I have here written it. Her face kindled, and she felt sure that she had convinced me that I was wrong, and that justice was a living person. Indeed, I did wince a little, but I recovered myself immediately, and pointed out to her that we had books whose genuineness was beyond all possibility of doubt, as they were certainly none of them less than eighteen hundred years old that in these there were the most authentic accounts of men who had been spoken to by the deity himself, and of one prophet who had been allowed to see the back parts of God through the hand that was laid over his face. This was conclusive, and I spoke with such solemnity that she was a little frightened, and only answered that they too had their books, in which their ancestors had seen the god, on which I saw that further argument was not at all likely to convince her, and fearing that she might tell her mother what I had been saying, and that I might lose the hold upon her affections, which I was beginning to feel pretty sure that I was obtaining, I began to let her have her own way, and to convince me. 
neither till after we were safely married did I show the cloven hoof again. Nevertheless, her remarks have haunted me, and I have since met with many very godly people who have had a great knowledge of divinity, but no sense of the divine, and again I have seen a radiance upon the face of those who were worshipping the divine either in art or nature, in picture or statue, in field or cloud or sea, in man, woman or child, which I have never seen kindled by any talking about the nature and attributes of God. Mention but the word divinity, and our sense of the divine is clouded. End of chapter 16